Well, we know what it's like to feel worried and helpless about the state of our world. But we're finding comfort and inspiration from people tackling winner-take-all economics and other root causes of climate change, inequity, and global unrest. Join us on the road from wasteland to wonderland. This is Part of Gold. In this episode of Part of Gold, we speak with Kate Rayworth. Kate came to our meetup in Cole in 2018. And I have to say, she was one of those participants who were open, engaged in pretty much every conversation, very interested what's going on in the practical field. And it was an absolute pleasure to meet her. Kate is an English economist with a bit of a rebel's mind. She is best known for introducing a new economic model called Donut Economics. It differs significantly from traditional economics because her model proposes that we actually strive to meet basic human needs in the context of our planet's natural resource limits. Let's listen in. We'd love for you to just introduce yourself briefly and uh, what are you doing in the world? Okay, I'm Kate Rayworth. I... Oh, I'm passionate about making economics fit for the 21st century because I was a student of economics nearly 30 years ago and felt that what I was taught was incredibly narrow and didn't take on the issues that I cared most about, like environmental integrity and social justice. So I walked away from it. I worked in the villages of Zanzibar for some years at the United Nations for Oxfam. And then after the financial crisis, I realized that economics was going to get at least partially rewritten because the economists themselves admitted that their models didn't reflect what on earth was going on in the financial sector. And have I, they actually really, sorry that I interrupt you, have they really admitted that? No, but at the time they did. Alan Greenspan oh. and others said, mm, wow. we don't know what happened. Our models just said this couldn't happen. And it kicked open a public conversation about the fallibility at the heart of mainstream economics. It gave the students internationally huge confidence Uh, to challenge their own teachers, to challenge the syllabus they were being taught. And so it began a questioning, a very public questioning of economics. And of course, we're now 10 years on. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that opportunity for transformation wasn't seized. And the, the system managed to carry on very nicely itself and, and reproduce itself. But I believe that there is a possibility of rewriting economics. And I wanted to make sure it's not just done from the point of view of finance, It's not just a financial crisis because we've got a climate change crisis and we've got a crisis of extreme inequality. So I left my job at Oxfam in order to write a book about all the economic theories I was never taught. Um, and that's what I'm doing now. And it came out being called Donut Economics, which is an appropriately silly name. Um, we like silly names. <laughs> and, and I'm now It's a very sticky name. finding myself talking about economic transformation. It is a sticky name. Sticky is good. Ideas need to stick. Yeah, and they need to be visualized. Need to be visualized. That is one thing I have definitely learned, the power of visualization. It's interesting to me you say you dropped out. You dropped out of school? I didn't or? drop out. No, I walked away. You walked away? I didn't drop away. out. I finished all my degrees, worked very hard. I definitely and then just didn't drop left. out. I just, my professor was saying, stay on, do a PhD. And I thought, I don't think I'm going to learn more by going further into academic economics. I want to immerse myself in the real world economy. So you're an independent thinker from the start, basically. Oh, I don't know. I just, um, I just was frustrated by the narrowness of the way that economics set out the world. And 
when I was working in Zanzibar, I found myself surrounded by people who'd studied sociology, anthropology, political economy, development studies. And I started reading some of the books they recommended to me, like Robert Chambers, Putting the Last First, and was just blown away by the introduction of power analysis um, of richer social relationships that seems so much more grounded in reality and thought, why on earth wasn't I taught any of this way of thinking? Why does it have to be so separated? Why do you think we missed the ball in 2008? What, what happened that we, we snapped back to the old system? Oh, well, the old system is extremely good at protecting itself and finding ways to carry on. I mean, um, after, the, after the crisis, you know, I think it was lots of, lots of senior executives from Goldman Sachs suddenly found themselves or suddenly f- figured out how to be in charge of U.S. Treasury and, and telling Treasury how to reform the system. So there's strong revolving doors. Um, I think there's also a problem that in the past there hasn't been a clear alternative way of looking at things. So it's very easy for in the universities for professors to say, well, yes, there are some limitations to theory, but this is the only legitimate standing theory. There's no coherent alternative that can be taught. So that's what I aim to do in my book, to bring together feminist ecological, behavioral, institutional, complexity, economics, and all their ideas and put them together so that they dance on the same page and show that actually there is an alternative way of looking at and understanding the economy. And many, uh, many people think it's a, a, a better way that gives us more useful, realistic insights. So, so that we can no longer be caught in the story of there is no alternative we have to return to this neoclassical mainstream and only look at other ways of thinking as a deviation away from that. I wanted to create a compelling alternative that actually said, nope, there is a different starting point. And you seem to be making great progress with that. It's well, awesome. it's definitely got a lot of traction, mm-hmm. um, mostly outside of economics departments. So actually what strikes me is that certainly within universities, the departments that pick it up most quickly are those that I think deal with the real world economy, urban studies, Mm -hmm. Uh, sustainability studies, places where students are learning about the real world as it's evolving and unfolding now. Even architecture and... Oh yeah, architectural design, absolutely. You mentioned our current neoliberal economic framework and the close relationship between Wall Street and government that's keeping us locked into this unsustainable model. What do you think it would take to break that relationship and open the door for new ways of imagining the economy? I don't know. I'm not close enough to the internal politics of US government and Wall Street. And I know that it definitely needs exposing and people revealing the relationships and revealing corruption. Um, But the focus of my work is in a different part of the challenge, which is to show that there are positive alternative ways of doing things. So you need both. I really like the quote from Bucky Fuller, Buckminster Fuller, Mm -hmm. right? You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. So I, I agree with that. I would tweak it. You never change things only by fighting the existing reality. You do need people fighting the existing reality, people who chain themselves to oil rigs, people who expose the Panama Papers and the corruption, people who call out... um outrageous behavior, but that alone is not going to change things. So I see myself as part of a very, very big team of change. And the place that I best fit in that team is to help visualize and present new ideas that actually 
build a new model. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I mean, it seems that we saw an attempt to expose the, that corruption that we see in Wall Street with the Occupy Wall Street movement. But as so much noise that was created by that movement, it didn't really offer an alternative or yeah. something that people could grab onto. And I think Wall Street, as I understand, Occupy had a strategy, which is we're not, uh, it's the one no, many yeses, right? We, we have one clear thing that we're against, and there are many, many things that we're for, perhaps too many yeses, because if you don't have the clear thing that you're for, then no one clear thing comes through. I, I think Occupy was incredibly powerful, but it didn't convert into a positive alternative. And as people often say, you've got to have those positive alternative ideas around, already dispersed, already familiar, already known, so that when opportunity arises, many people can point to something and say, ah, there is another way of doing things. Let's go for that. Fantastic. So let's take a minute to break down Kate's model in Donut Economics. It's a very visual model. This is why I like like it so much because it's so easy. So maybe you take a pen and paper or just close your eyes and try to imagine it as we talk you through it. We also have a picture in our show notes. So this is where we include a link and you can go there later. So we mentioned earlier the donut economics model balances the basic human needs to be met for a prosperous society within the limitations of our planet's given resources. So we start by drawing a donut. Here is just a big circle. And then we draw a little circle inside. That looks like a donut. And then inside that inner circle, the donut hole, so to say, we draw 12 lines, like the spokes of a bicycle wheel. So now it looks like a pizza and not really like a donut. Anyway, so each of these wedges on the inner circle represents human needs that the economy ought to sustain, such as food, water, health, education, peace, etc. All these together make the social foundation the basis for a livable and prosperous society for all. Anywhere the economy fails to meet one of these needs is called a shortfall. Now, if you imagine the outside of the donut, imagine nine spokes shooting out like sun rays from the outside of the donut. These wedges represent the consequences of an overextended human economy. For example, things like climate change, chemical pollution, biodiversity loss, ozone layer depletion, anywhere that the economy produces a negative impact on the environment or even on people, Kate calls it an overshoot. So what's left? The donut in the middle, that's what Kate has labeled the safe and just space for humanity in her model. And truly functional economy allows us to live balanced in that space. We asked Kate about the kinds of audiences her model appeals to. Yeah, so often when I give a talk, the first thing I do is say, who in this audience has ever studied economics in any way, school, university? And about 40% of the audience put their hand up. Really? Yeah, there's often a lot of people. Um, and then I say, who in this audience has never studied economics and actually can't quite believe they've come to a talk with the word economics in the title? <laughs> and about 40% of people put their hand up. Um, so I really like the fact that it brings together people who maybe are, wanted, want, are curious about what I'm talking about, the, the subject they did study, or like me, were frustrated by the subject they studied, or have never been interested before. And I think that's why the donut helps, because it's already telling you it's silly, it's different, it's accessible. 
um, I really like it when people after a talk would say to me, you know, I've never studied economics. I never thought I'd understand it because I didn't study maths as if economics was only maths. But this really made sense to me. Actually, it's common sense. You're telling me it's not always like this? <laughs> and one of the nicest times was a, a young woman asked me, she had a copy of my book. She asked me if I would sign it. She said, my father bought this book. He read it and he gave it to me. And he said, I think I finally understand what it is that you're doing. Wow, that's so nice. Which I really appreciate it because I think that's one thing that my book, Donut Economics, I'm told helps, which is narrate an overview that many people who are working in the space of the new economy say, oh, this at least now it gives an overview that makes sense of what I'm doing and it puts my work in a picture that others can then understand. Because we do need those overviews. We need, we need uh, stories and images and simple concepts that help us see a different bigger picture so kate what do you hope people walk away with from reading your book and for me the way i try and help people see i mean the last chapter in my book i call it we are all economists now mm -hmm. um, because when we realize that the economy is a complex dynamic ever-evolving system And you think about how complex systems evolve, like um, a natural system, like a rainforest. Well, how do, how do species evolve? By small, small um, alterations and variations at the margins, some of which then have a good fit to the environment and then take up. And so then when you turn around and look at all the so-called fringe activity happening in economies, like complementary currencies, like cooperatives, like... Um, platform cooperatives, like people doing sort, all sorts of things around the edges, which are often dismissed as fringe or marginal. That is exactly where evolution happens. And, and I think when this father gave my book to his daughter and said, I think I now finally understand what it is that you're doing. I think it was through that lens that he suddenly saw her work. It somehow seemed marginal, odd to him. And he realized it was actually the beginnings of uh, a new kind of economy that could emerge. So then when you, when you see it that way, you realize, well, I am a, one of many parts in a complex adaptive system and how I behave can build into critical mass for how the system behaves, but also how I innovate can be part of the evolution of this system. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very empowering thought. Mm -hmm. I had two questions for you about, one is regarding uh, externalized costs. A lot of what you talk about is, are the things that aren't really get captured in our economic system. And I guess in economic world, we call that externalized costs. Mm -hmm. And if you could speak to that. A little bit. And the second question is about, um, we're here talking about money, and money is a very s small but important, maybe not small, but an important part of economics, but not all the whole picture. So maybe you could speak a little bit to the monetary system as well. But first, externalized costs. So in my four years of studying economics, if I wanted to talk about climate change, ocean acidification, hole in the ozone layer, breakdown of biodiversity, chemical pollution, air pollution, I was offered two words. Ah, oh, yes, these are environmental externalities. <laughs> And to me, this is just an alarm bell because if in the 21st century, the way we talk about the living world and its degradation and the breakdown of the systems on which we depend, if the only way that economics has to talk about that is to call it an environmental externality, this tells us that the theory is really not up to the challenges that it claims to address. And the reason that happens is because on day one worldwide, this is another question I say to audiences, okay, everybody in the audience who put their hand up who said they've ever studied economics, what's the first thing you remember learning in your economics classes? The world over, supply and demand. Um, 
as if to say, welcome to economics, here is the market, as if the economy is just the market and the market's in equilibrium. But because economics, the way it's currently taught, starts day one with supply and demand, it places at the center of its analysis and its worldview market exchange and price information carrying value. And therefore, anything falls outside of the value that's captured in the contract between those who did the supply and the demand um, is called an externality because it's external to the price mechanism contract. That then, and an economists could explain this very rationally, well, it's external to the contract. Okay, but then it, then it gets, takes on a life of its own and it just becomes an externality to the economic system. Um, and economists say, well, yes, we understand externalities are very important and they have to be internalized. <laughs> I think, well, if you, if you understood enough and you really listened to the language, you wouldn't go around talking about it as an externality because that in itself marginalizes and it pushes it to the periphery. And you're, you're, you're calling that only because you're, you're putting market-based exchange at the center. Start bigger. Don't start on day one with supply and demand. Why don't you start by asking a question that's almost never asked? What is the purpose of the economy? What is it for? Because if we don't know what it's for, how on earth do we know what success looks like? And let's start with a really big picture of the economy embedded in society, embedded in the living world. So let's start on day one showing that the whole economy is a subsystem of social and ecological systems, deeply dependent upon them and therefore must be compatible with their continuity. And secondly, the economy contains, in terms of the ways that humanity organizes for provisioning, not just the market and not just the state, but also the household, the space of unpaid caring work, and the commons, the place of co-creation. And these are four actually fundamental forms of provisioning that people have invented and reinvented across different cultures. And they have unique properties. And I would not want to live in an economy and a society that lacked any one of them because they all bring unique values. But it's a really in interesting conversation that almost never happens in, e in economics degrees. Which one works best when? And what are the conditions required to make it work? And when does it break down and how are they interdependent? How does the market depend on the household, on the commons, on the state? To me, this opens up the politics and the fascinating Absolutely. questions and the sociological questions of economics, but they barely ever get asked. You are brilliant at explaining that. Wow. That's <laughs> really beautifully phrased. And, you know, I just got everything that you said was all of a sudden explained and clarified externalization to me. <laughs> Isn't that great? Fantastic. Well, I'm glad. Well, the way I, the way I've done it and the way I, so as I was talking just then about the economy in, in the society and the uh, living world and the market, the state, the house on the commons, I, actually, you can, you can see my hand waving around yes. in the air because what I'm doing is talking my way through a diagram. Through, yes. And I profoundly believe in the power of images. Mm -hmm. Um, I drew the donut diagram first in 2012. And I was completely amazed by the uh, pickup it had internationally. People just responded so strongly to it. And I realized then the power of pictures. And that made me go back to my own economics textbooks that I was taught from and look at the pictures that had been put into the back of my head and that were still influencing the way I thought, whether it's supply and demand or endless growth. Um, and I realized that if we want to write a new economic story, we're never going to do that if we're using still the old pictures. You have to change the pictures to tell a new story. So at the heart of my book is the new images. And I, I really spent a lot of time trying to distill and simplify those images so that you can convey very simply and clearly in a way that anybody can understand a new 
uh, image of the economy. It's not just an exponential curve. So I completely agree, Kate, what we just said, um, because it's so important to make images simple and that people understand it without questioning too much. Um, and it is really this, this clarity of purpose, which often enough is missing, because you have so much work in, let's say, the complement currency um, uh, communities to actually do the currency and then the most important question why are we doing this currency who who, who is it actually for and what yeah. is the purpose of this sometimes yeah. gets forgotten tautness pound is one of those examples we actually did it in this episode with ben and enos um who very clearly openly you know criticized it a little bit like that's what was missing with uh, tautness um so what can you say about the potential behind projects like that and what they're out to achieve again it connects purpose and design because if you design something without having a clarity about the intended purpose then the design whatever you've written into its design will play out that dynamic and end up having serving that purpose and that purpose may die so um yeah in the space of complementary currencies i think it's really fascinating question of course many of us have learned from bernard Liotard, and he, he says you know what is an unmet need and an underused resource and how can i pair those together and i learned that from him to look at the potential of complementary currencies in that way yeah or any currency is made that way uh yes although yes although it just serves different forms of it capital. serves very different forms of purpose <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and coming back to the question on design because we're so used to the mainstream money that we use, it's very hard to see that it is even designed. So what I often do, if I find myself in a situation talking about money, I'll say, well, I have in my, I have in my pocket a little purse that contains seven kinds of money that are used today in the UK. People look at you completely blankly. <laughs> so I say, well, let me show you. And the first one, I, I say, the first one here is often the first form of currency that many children encounter. It's the gold star. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you yeah. pee on the potty, you get a gold star. If you tie your room, you get a gold star. And at the end of the week, if you've got enough gold stars, you can get some sweets. This is the first kind of currency we introduce to our children. Uh, I tried doing this with my children. And I said to my daughter when she was about two, if you pee on the potty, you'll get a gold star. She immediately sat on the potty and divided her wee up into six little parts, <laughs> six wees, and asked for six gold stars. Oh, um, like mother, like daughter. Huh? She gained the system from day one, so I said, okay, that's enough, we're not going to do gold stars anymore. <laughs> but she knew how to play the system. But another kind of currency in the use in the UK is, of course, uh, the, you know, the, the, the £10 note. That's what people often think money is, the paper money that's created by the government. But then there's the credit card. Uh, that's actually money created by commercial banks as debt-bearing interest. And everybody's got a bit, bit of plastic in their wallet, and that's a different kind of money. But then there's um, the, the shop loyalty card. Shop here and you get points, and then you get more points off. Um, I also have a babysitting card from a babysitting circle that I'm part of, and it's worth four hours of babysitting. And that circulates amongst our community. And then there's a Brixton pound or a Totnes pound. And I pull all these different forms of currency out, and people are... Wow, I never, th I never thought about this diversity of money. And then you can point out, you know, every money has these three key characteristics. Who gets to create it? Is it my babysitting circle or the government or the shop? What character is given? Does it bear interest? Does it bear demurrage? Does it, is it uh, neutral? And what it can be used for? It can be used for 
buying sweeties when you've done your peas in the potty. It can be used for buying more goods in our shop. It can be used for hours of babysitting. Um, it can be used to get a mortgage. All these different kinds of currencies have very different designs. Who gets to create it, its character and its use. And that shapes our behavior, and our a very different purpose too. And distribution. And sorry? Very different purpose and too. And very different purposes. And when you do that, and when you show people an array of designs, mm -hmm. I think it's only then through that lens that they can then look on that thing they are so familiar with that called money and see that it's designed. Um, I wonder if, if we can sum up with maybe um, a bit of advice. I mean, if you were talking to a young activist or someone interested in, in changing the world in one way or another, uh, what kind of advice would you, would you give that person? My advice would be that the team trying to change the world is very big, very diverse. Uh, I love being part of it. I love feeling that I have colleagues who I'm united to, not because we share an employer, but because we share a purpose. There are many, many different places to work in this space. You can be somebody who changed themselves to oil rigs as a protester, or you can be somebody who does um, uh, activist knitting and is part of a very gentle art of persuasion of change. Um, you can write letters to companies that you own shares. I mean, there are so many different ways you can be involved. So ask yourself, what kind of person am I? Am I extrovert? Am I introvert? Do I like to shout against things that I'm against or do I like to show things I'm for do I like to uh, represent things in words or art or um, image there are so many ways to be involved and f understand who you are and find a way of being involved that fits with the qualities you have that's brilliant advice really thank you so much thank you If you enjoyed our conversation with Kate and are interested in learning more, check out her book, Donut Economics, which we'll link in the show notes, of course, as well as her TED Talk. Yeah, it was such an honor to have Kate on the show. Her model is one of the clearest we've seen for explaining the need for a more balanced design of our economy. So go out and share some donuts. I like glazed. You're buying, You're right, buying, Mel? You're buying, right? <laughs> We're an independent, listener-supported podcast. Thanks to our producer, Riley Paul. Support us by rating this episode and sharing with all your friends. And to learn more, join us at potofgold.world. I'm Stephanie Overbach. And I'm Mel Wymore. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.